How you guys doing this weekend? Uh, so my name's Tony Sorcy. I'm campus pastor over at Cedar Lake, uh, if you don't know who I am. Uh, we're talking about anger this weekend, which is totally appropriate on a three-day weekend, right, to talk about anger. We're all mad we got Monday off. I get I know, right? But uh, it's kind of odd, but we're talking about anger this weekend. I want you to think with me for a moment about some of the most epic, historical, angry, meltdown moments, okay? So think with me on some just just out-of-control, crazy, angry, meltdown moments. How about in sports, right? Being here in Chicago, we've seen enough of these, right? Lou Pinello was the manager of the Cubs, right? Uh, some of us witnessed that, kicking dirt on home plate, picking up bases, throwing them. Um, even um, more amazing than that is ex-Cubs pitcher Carlos Sombrano uh, going ape on water coolers and punching teammates in the dugout. Lots of anger in that guy. He was a joy to have in Chicago. How about Coach Q? My gosh, right? I'm like, I am scared of that guy, right? He's the coach of the Blackhawks. He's always angry, that guy. Here we are in Indiana. And what do you think about Indiana basketball and anger? Throwing chairs across the court, right? Bobby Knight. John McEnroe is like famous for this. Smashing tennis rackets, arguing with line judges. Just this past week, a catcher from the Dodgers did his best impression of Mike Tyson and bit a teammate's ear. Right? It's like, really, dude? Yeah? A lot of anger in sports. How about cinema? Any historical angry meltdowns? When you think about movies? My favorite is the dad from A Christmas Story. Right? He's always cursing his furnace and bumpus his hounds. He's got this like quasi cussing going on. I'm not really sure what he's saying. I love that guy. How about John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski? I don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie. Lots of anger there. One of my favorites is uh, Steve Martin's meltdown in the grocery store and Father of the Bride. Have you guys seen Father of the Bride? <laughs> some big shot over at the Wiener Company got together with some big shot over at the Bun Company and decided to stick it to the American people. I love that scene. I love that scene. How about YouTube? Like, this, like anger, like rants, like this is the stuff YouTube's made of, right? Um, every year, Jimmy Kimmel encourages his, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's a, a guy who has a talk show late at night. And um, he, every year he encourages parents uh, to record them telling their kids the day after Halloween when they wake up that they, while they were sleeping, their parents ate all their Halloween candy. And they record that and send it in. If you've never seen this, just YouTube, Jimmy Kimmel, Halloween, thank me later, send the email. It's amazing, right? The anger from these kids provoked by their parents, for sure, for sure. So a lot of anger in the world. How about real life? Have you witnessed any fits of anger lately? Parents, any fits from your kids? Have you witnessed any adults throwing fits lately? On a serious note, how about you? Is anger an issue in your life? Is anger an issue in your marriage, your home, your heart? About a month ago, we were getting, I was getting ready to take my boys to school. And I scheduled a meeting way too close. And I was real hurried getting out the door. And I was like, I was kind of yelling at my kids, let's get in the car. And my oldest son, he's eight, he was kind of dribbling the soccer ball and didn't listen to me right away. And in anger, I booted his soccer ball down the street, got in his face and said, get in the car. Any anger like that in your life? Any anger like that in your home? It wasn't a proud moment for me. All of us deal with anger, some more than others, but all of us in some way deal and struggle with anger. And what I want to do is I want to reach back, as we've been going through this Ten Commandments series, I want to reach back to the Sixth Commandment 
and focus on Jesus' words about anger. You know, the sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. And Jesus had something to say about murder in Matthew chapter 5. So we're going to be in Matthew 5, 21 to 24. And we're going to look at Jesus' words about the sixth commandment and how he always goes beyond the action to the heart. That's what Jesus is so helpful for us in this Ten Commandments series. It's not just our behavior. It's not just our actions. It's our heart. Everything we do, everything we say flows from there. We're going to look at Jesus' words, spend a little bit of time in exposition. And then what we're going to do is really kind of develop a biblical theology of anger. And then what we're going to do is we're going to see how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and his resurrection, helps us in this struggle with anger. And not just helps us, but rescues us. So let's read Matthew 5, 21 to 24. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God, there are some of us in here that are really, really struggling with anger. And God, I don't know of a single person in here who has a stone in their hand to throw when it comes to this. We are all guilty of this. God, show us rightly in your word how to view ourselves. Show us our sin, but show us your amazing grace in the, in the midst of this as well. And help us by looking at your son, Jesus, help us to overcome and grow in this issue, God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what Jesus does. Matthew 5, 21, he says, at the heart of murder is anger. Just at the heart of adultery is lust. Jesus is always going deeper beyond just the actions to our hearts to show us truly where we're broken, truly where we're fallen, truly where we are falling short. So Jesus is bringing us to the root of our problem here. So just a couple things to point out in Jesus' words. Spend a little bit of time, not the whole time. But notice that the There's three people Jesus describes here, starting with the word whoever, okay? It's three different people. And the first person is someone who is angry with his brother without the mention of any demonstration of that anger. And the last two describe action. Maybe you're a person in here who really prides themselves on being able to stuff your anger down and you don't don't come out and you don't freak out and you don't just unload on people. But Jesus says the first person is whoever is angry with his brother and no mention of action. Jesus here is addressing the person who acts sinfully in anger. Not the person who acts sinfully in anger, rather, but the person who brews anger, brews bitterness quietly in their thoughts and in their hearts, though it may never manifest. And then he goes on to two different people now where we have this kind of outward action of this anger. It's manifesting itself. So here's the the second one. It's whoever insults his brother. So the first one who's ever angry, now it's whoever insults his brother. And so anger is manifesting itself in in words, as most of our anger does with our words, with our tongues. And so the word for insult points to a posture of contempt and pride. What's what's even at the root of this anger? Jesus says it's it's pride. Raka is the word here. And it's like, it's the equivalent of calling someone a stupid idiot or a moron. You guys ever do that? You guys ever call somebody an idiot, a moron? You ever do that subtly in your heart and in your mind? This is when we insult people's competency, right? And we do this when we drive, don't we? Are you this person on the road? 
This is where we think everybody on the road's an idiot, especially Illinois drivers. <laughs> this guy's an idiot, and he's from Illinois. Go figure. If I was a pastor in Illinois, I would have said Indiana drivers right there because Illinois drivers think that about us. You're this person on the road. No one knows how to drive. Everyone got their driver's license out of a Cracker Jack box. Everyone's an idiot. Everyone's a moron. Everyone's completely incompetent to operate a motor vehicle. I'm the only one clearly around here who knows what they're doing because I'm going 15 miles over the speed limit and in a hurry. You're all idiots, right? Is that you? We do this when we get in a a mode of constant critique of servers and workers and employees at a place of business. Are you this person out to eat? Your server, every server you have is an idiot, moron, doesn't know how to do their job. You think everyone's incompetent. No one knows what they're doing. You're the person that can do everyone's job better. This is the heart that Jesus is talking about here. Where do insults come from? Pride, right? Pride. A place of a place of superiority. And so that's that, that's that guy. The last guy is this. This next guy, he uses the expression, you fool. And on the surface, it looks the, it looks the same, right? It looks the same as insult. But as you dig a little bit deeper, it, it's a little bit different. This is an insult, but it's an insult of the heart and character of a person. So the first one is, you idiot, moron. It's kind of like I'm questioning your competency. When someone says, you fool, now we're calling into the heart, the character, the worth, and the value of a person. It's still set in contempt for the person, but it's a judgment on their value, their worth. It's, it, it's like saying someone's good for nothing or worthless. Like, that guy's garbage. That guy's worthless. Like when I said of a certain safety on the Chicago Bears when he blew his coverage on the very last play that gave away the winning touchdown against Green Bay last January, and I said of that guy, you're garbage. That's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Why? Right? And even when we, when we got into murder, if you guys remember, what, what, what doctrine did we bring in on the side? The doctrine of what? The imago Dei, the image of God. That we're all created by God, for God. We have worth and we have value because God created us in his image. And it's interesting to see here, even when Jesus gets into anger and insults, this doctrine still emerges here. We have worth and we have value because we're made in God's image. It's not just murder, but it's a heart posture of insults too. It disregards the value of individuals made in God's image. So note, note the heart of anger, pride, superiority, contempt. And so Jesus here takes the sixth commandment to the heart level, and he shows us truly how broken we are. We're broken at the heart level. There's something inherent about us that's broken. The Bible calls it sin. And Jesus has just implicated all of us in these words. And here's where in the Ten Commandments series, the mirror metaphor needs to come in. We can't just see Ten Commandments, Jesus' words as map for life, but mirror showing us our need for God's grace. And there's some of you here who need to hear this word. Your anger is great in your life. Your pride is great in your heart. It's huge. It almost seems overcomable, but you need to hear today that Jesus loves the angry and he died for anger. And his grace is more amazing and greater than your anger. So we're going to get to that in a little bit. Now, we need a little nuance when we talk about anger because not all anger is bad. God is angry. And we even see Jesus in the Gospels. He gets angry. And what I want to do is I want to talk about godly anger. Okay? Jesus here shows us a a prideful, sinful anger. What I want to do is I want to look at two instances in the life of Jesus to show us a godly anger, how God gets mad, and use it as a launching point to talk about the heart of God when he gets angry. So the first one is in Mark 3, 1 to 6. And the, and the verses are on the screen for you. 
But this is the man with the withered hand, and we're just going to get into it. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. These are his enemies. They're watching, waiting to trip him up. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, to see whether or not he would break their man-made rules, their interpretation of the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. That's all they were trying to do with Jesus. Just accuse him, marginalize him, chop him at the knees. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he turns to these guys and says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with what? Anger. He looked at these religious leaders, these, the, these Pharisees. He looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Here's one instance where we see the anger of Jesus. Why is he angry? He's angry over their religious hypocrisy. Here's a bunch of guys with their arms folded, waiting to see if Jesus is going to break one of their man-made laws, when as the religious leaders, they should have been the ones over there with arm around the man with the withered hand, encouraging him, loving him, reaching out to him. Instead, what are they doing? In a place of pride and in contempt, they're making sure everybody's obeying the rules and their hardness of heart. And Jesus here shows a love for people and a desire to restore in this man what's broken in him. What has Jesus wanting to restore this man? He hates sin. And the effects of sin in this world have everything to do with us spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and physically too. And here's this man with his withered hand. That's not how God made that hand to operate. That's not how God made this world. And we see in this, Jesus wants to restore that. He wants to bring shalom and peace and restoration to this man's hand. So what's one thing that's got Jesus fired up? He hates sin and all of its effects. He wants to restore this man. He's angry about this man's hand. It burdens him. So we see that Jesus hates the effects of sin in the world that he has made for his own glory. And he also shows a kind of hatred for a kind of religion where obeying man-made rules trumps loving and serving people. These guys were so worried about obeying these rules and their rules kept them from doing actually the greatest rule, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And their religion prevented them from loving people on the Sabbath. And Jesus is angry about religious hypocrisy here. He's angry over the hardness of their hearts. So what do we see from here for Jesus? His anger has to do with love for people. Hatred of sin, love for people, hatred for a kind of religion and spirituality that, that trumps, that, that sees obeying rules over loving people. So he's angry there. Angry over the effects of sin, angry over religious hypocrisy. The next one is the cleansing of the temple. This is one of my favorite. John two thirteen to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Just pause. So what would happen is a lot of people would travel a far way to come to Jerusalem to come and worship. And so a lot of times when they showed up, they couldn't bring their animals with them. Maybe they couldn't make the long trip. And so they would have to purchase something to sacrifice. Or maybe they had to change their money over in this place because their money wasn't good there. And what these people would do is just gouge people there to come to worship, right? It's like the, it's like the temple first century version of like gouging you for $8.75 for a beer at a Blackhawks game. It's like, you're here. We're going to make you pay this. Think that. They're just gouging these guys, Right? Over making them pay much, much more. They're taking advantage of their heart to worship. 
They're taking advantage of people. And Jesus comes in and he sees this. They're selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Notice this next phrase, and making a whip of cords. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Then he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written. Here's their reaction. Zeal for your house will consume me. What's Jesus angry about? Again, it has to do with people, loving people. He's angry because of injustice. People are being taken advantage of with the changing of money. People are being exploited in the very place where they should be discovering the God of love and the God of grace. They're supposed to be discovering a God who loves them unconditionally, and they're being taken advantage of. Jesus is angry about this. Notice another thing about Jesus' anger. His anger is slow. How many of you guys have this view of the temple scene that Jesus just comes in and just flies off the handle? I want to point you back to this one little phrase. And making a whip of cords, he then walked in and drove them out. Jesus' anger is what? Slow. It's slow. Notice that he made a whip. What What all did that entail? I don't know, but two things for sure. One, he had to gather the leather for the whip. And two, he had to make the time, take the time to make the whip. Right? I doubt like the leather's just sitting in his back pocket. Oh, here's all the stuff. I need to make a whip. He had to go get it and make the whip. Jesus doesn't just fly off the handle here like I did that morning on my son. This is not quick anger. This is calculated, thought out, slow building, righteous anger. The entire time he's making this whip, Jesus is thinking what he would do when he would get into that temple. One of the very first descriptions we get of God in Exodus 34 is this. A God merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Slow to anger. It builds. God's anger is slow. Godly anger is slow. And also notice what's at the root of Jesus' anger here. It's passion. It's love. What's the disciples' reaction? As they watch this whole scene go down, they remember back in the Old Testament, Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. The rescuer, the Messiah is coming. What do we know about that Messiah? He's going to be a passionate man, a zealous man. And they watch Jesus' zeal and passion for God's glory and love for people played out right in front of them. What's at the heart of Jesus' anger? Passion, zeal. Jesus' anger was driven by love, passion, zeal, love for people, love for God, zealous for the glory of God. And so Jesus in the New Testament shows us that there are things that we should be angry about as God's people, that we need to be angry about. In fact, this morning, I want to call two types of people to repentance. The people who are always angry, and those of us in here who are never angry about anything, ever. Love for God, love for people, zeal for the glory of God, hatred for sin and all of its effects, demands that we get angry in this life at some point. And so this sermon's not just for the always angry, it's also for the chilled out, super calm, overly calm, spiritually indifferent, spiritually lazy. You don't ever get mad. You don't ever get fired up. And that's your problem. That's your problem. So Jesus was angry over matters of God's kingdom, God's glory, passion for people and a love for God. And here's where Jesus' anger is set apart from ours because we are not like this. Whereas Jesus got angry over matters of God's kingdom and God's glory, we get angry over matters of our own kingdoms. We get angry over matters of our own selves. Our anger is all too often driven by a zeal and a passion for our own authority, for our own glory. 
And our anger is mostly rooted not in love for God or others, but love for ourselves. And this is the idolatry of anger. The idolatry of anger is this, love for self. Love for self, the idol of self. In our discipleship and how we view life, we need to come to this realization that there is something about us that is broken. There's something about us that inherently is broken. The Bible calls it sin. And more specifically, it's a radical self-centeredness that we all have. We are so devoted to ourselves. We love ourselves. We are self-centered people. We are selfish by nature and choice. And our anger really is rooted in selfishness. And it shows itself in these three areas. Anger with others, anger in circumstances, and anger with God even. And so what I want to do is I want to view our anger, our selfish, self-centered anger through the lens of these three areas. Anger with others, anger in circumstances, and anger with God. So let's talk about how we get angry with others. And let's watch how this love of self, this, this, this idol of self plays itself out. You know, oftentimes we get angry when we're relating with people, talking with people, when someone corrects us, disagrees with us, or thinks we're wrong. I get angry when people don't view the things the way I see them. This is why I get mad, right? Sitting at this little conference table over here hmm? on Tuesday mornings when our staff meets and we talk about things. Maybe an idea I have is dismissed or somebody disagrees with me. Why do I take that personally? Because I love myself. And I think the way I see it ought to trump everybody else's way they see it. That's why I get angry. How about those people in your life that are difficult to love? You have some people that are difficult to love in your life? You can be throwing beanbags with somebody difficult to love tomorrow morning or tomorrow, right? Some of you guys are spending time with somebody who's difficult to love. Maybe you're that person who's difficult to love. We get angry a lot of times with people who are difficult to love. And most of the time, it doesn't really have to do so much that they're difficult. It's that it's an inconvenience for us to actually take the effort and the time to love them in their difficulty. We're inconvenience. It's hard on us. I have to actually pray myself up, rely on the Holy Spirit, do some hard work to love this difficult person. A lot of times we just point a finger and say, this person is difficult to love. A lot of times it's our own inconvenience in that. Love for ourselves, we're inconvenience. We get angry when we're personally mistreated or ignored or disrespected. That person ignored me. They didn't say hi to me. They were short with me. They didn't text me. They didn't invite me. They hurt me. And I will say that in this room, there are people who have legitimately been wronged and hurt by others. And your pain is real and your circumstances are difficult. And I'm not dismissing that as all, at all. Those are real. But God has really called you to walk that out in a certain way. But most of the time, our anger with others really has to do with our own inconvenience. You know, this is at the root, the selfishness is at the root of so much of the hurt and brokenness in marriage. Right? Each spouse is looking at each other like this. You didn't serve me, meet my needs, respect me, bend to my will, see it my way. You're not making me happy. And a lot of times what you have in marriage is two spouses expecting the other person to know their needs, how to love them, make them happy, and they're just waiting for the other to serve them. And what happens when you have two totally selfish people who are looking at the other to start? You, you take the first step. You love me. Each are sitting over here saying, hmm, I wonder when that's going to start. And it never starts. Because each is looking at the other person to do it first. We see this play out. I see this play out in my own marriage. Our anger has to do with our pride towards each other as well. When we see ourselves as better than others, it leads to frustration and anger. 
So you see this when you're working with coworkers or even uh, uh, parents with children. You expect them to be at a certain level. There's certain expectations. When they don't meet that, there's impatience and anger, right? Maybe there's pride and contempt for that person. Idiot, right? Moron. It leads us to say things like that. So that's anger with others. Oftentimes, it's a love for self that's with our anger with others. How about angry with circumstances, right? A lot of us in our anger, we like to point fingers at our circumstances. Well, if this wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, I stole this from somebody, so I don't think I'm this smart. Um, I, I stole this from Paul Tripp. He, he holds up a water bottle and he says this. What would happen if I would just start shaking this water bottle violently? This water would come out. And then what if I asked you this question? Why did water come out of the bottle? And you're like, because uh, you shook it. Right? That's like my first reaction to this. Like when I first heard this, he goes, no, what if I told you that water came out of the bottle because water's in the bottle? The shaking just brought it out. The shaking just revealed it. A lot of the times in our circumstances, we like to blame that. But what circumstances are doing oftentimes is just revealing truly what's lying at the heart. And we love to point fingers at our circumstances, don't we? So many times I have people in my office and they'll say, they'll, 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 they'll recall some, some moment where they just melted down. They're like, this is not me. This is not who I am. I don't do this. And I look at them and I'm saying, yeah, this is who you are. And there's a lot of joy and freedom in embracing and owning who you are and coming to see that Jesus loves you still and his grace is greater. But we love to point fingers. We get angry when things don't go according to our plan, our will, or when we're inconvenience. This is why we get angry in traffic jams, right? Things aren't going according to my plan. I wanted to be here at this time. I'm being inconvenienced in these circumstances. This is why we get angry in the Starbucks drive-thru when we get behind the person who's ordering the drink with like 12 adjectives in the description. It takes them the entire minute to order the drink, and then it takes five minutes to make the drink. Are you that person? Please come see me afterwards. I want to talk to you. I want to have a counseling session with you. We're like, we're sitting in this drive-thru and it's like, oh my gosh, seriously, idiot, come on. Right? What, what, what's at the heart of that? My inconvenience. Circumstance. This is why we get angry with our kids when they have to use the bathroom 20 minutes into a three-hour trip. After you said five times, does anybody have to go to the bathroom? Parents, a lot of our anger with our kids has to do with inconvenience rather than their sin. A lot of it's that we're inconvenienced, not so much that they disobeyed. How many of you have visibly expressed disgust and anger with your kids over something like spilling some kind of drink or knocking something over or dropping an iPad on the driveway? (laughs) Which happened to me this past week. Or maybe we get mad at them for being loud or making messes or in other words, just being kids. A lot of times it's not their sin. It's not their immaturity. It's just that they're eight. And we can justify ourselves by pointing a finger at them. But a lot of times we get mad because we are inconvenienced. I have to put down this book and solve this issue. I have to stop eating this meal and deal with this and clean up this mess. I'm not getting the peace and quiet I'm wanting right now. Shut up! And it's not that funny. This is our hearts. We're selfish. And I challenge you, just discover. Next time you're angry, just stop and pause. Say, why am I being angry right now? And if you trace the rabbit hole down of your anger, you're going to see that Jesus' words are all too often true. Pride, love of self, 
personal inconvenience. I'm loving myself right now in my anger. Anger with people, anger with circumstances. How about this one? Anger with God. The greatest reveal of our self-centeredness is when we're angry with God. God, this is not how I planned my life. You have not given me the things I wanted when I wanted them. You're not answering my prayers. You're not treating me fairly. This is not what I deserve. I deserve better. I've asked for something different than this. I expected to have a bigger house, more money in the bank, and a better job at this point in my life. Why do I or do I not have this physical trait? Why do I or do I not have this physical thing? Why do I have this physical illness? Why this trial? Why this struggle? Why me? You are my God and you should serve me. God was not there when I needed him. He was absent. God, you took this thing from me. I blame you. Now I'm angry. And the ultimate showcase of our idolatry is when we sit in judgment on God and we get angry with him for our circumstances in life. And we place ourselves on the judgment seat and God is the one who we're evaluating. That is the height of our self-idolatry when we judge God. And I do it every single time I complain about a circumstance in my life. Every single time I complain, I do that. And what we're doing in all these spheres is placing ourselves in the position of God. We're seeing ourselves as seated on God's throne. Circumstances, others, and even God himself exist for me to serve me to accomplish my will. And our own hearts are broken in this. So you see the idol of self there. Now, I got to race through this last little bit here, but we don't have a ton of time to spend on this, but we see our own hearts are broken, but there's, there's something else at work, someone else at work. Let's talk about anger and our enemy really, really quick. Anger and our enemy. Two verses I want to show to you here, okay? That connect in scripture, a connection between anger and Satan and his efforts in our lives. Two verses really quick. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. So there's a way to be angry and not sin, Paul says. Be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And notice what he says here. When you let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Paul's talking about how this church needs to forgive a person that they once exercised church discipline on. He's repentant. Bring him back. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Notice why Paul's forgiving here. Look what he says. This is huge. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul, why are you forgiving? Well, multiple reasons. One, he's been forgiven much in Christ. But two, Paul notices a connection between Satan's effort in our lives, in our churches, and in our relationships with unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger. So you see the connection here. One of the main areas that Satan seeks to destroy is relationships. Relationships with one another, relationships in the church, relationships in family, our relationship with God. And one of the main tools, one of the main things he uses is a brewing bitterness, unforgiveness, anger. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to turn out like the girl from the exorcist if you let anger brew in your heart. I'm not, going to, I'm not saying that. But it seems as though there is a connection to Satan's efforts in our lives and our anger and our unwillingness to forgive. Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil. Let us not be outwitted by Satan. Let us not be ignorant of his designs. Anger is no small thing. Bitterness is no small thing. 
Unforgiveness is no small thing. It's demonic. It's satanic. We need to feel the weight of that. Now, if your head does begin to spin and you start puking green, call the office. We're going to need to make an appointment and talk to you about that, okay? Just throwing it out there. Okay, so Sorcy, I see where we fall short, right? I see, I, see my, I see my idol of self. I see where I fall short. I see where I've disobeyed. I, you're really showing me my anger rightly. Where's the hope? Give me some hope. How can I be encouraged in this? Well, encouragement comes from Jesus. Encouragement comes from the grace of God and the gospel. And for some of you right now, you're dominated by anger and you've never tasted of the love, the ferocious love of God. And I want to invite you to come and check that out today, to receive that and embrace that. But for those of us who have embraced that and we still see anger as an issue, I want, I want us to reach back to the cross. I want us to reach back into the gospel to find resources for us to deal with our anger and to watch our anger dwindle. So let's talk about anger and the gospel. The gospel has so much to say about this. All right. First is this. The gospel, when we're angry, so much of it is pride, contempt for others. The gospel gives us a correct view of ourselves. The gospel speaks the truth about who we are. So many times we're angry and we're sitting up here on a, on a seat of judgment and pride. We're better than this person. The gospel says this. Before the good news, it's the bad news. You're a sinner and you're broken and you're beggarly for the grace of God. Tell me that doesn't just push back on our pride. It pushes back on our contempt for others. In the gospel, we truly see ourselves for who we are. We're beggarly for God's grace so that our hearts will rejoice over the good news that God's grace has come. And this truth brings us down off of our prideful throne to see that we are no better, no better. The gospel allows us to view ourselves rightly. I'm no better than this person. Why am I having a heart of pride and contempt for them? You know, if we are saved by works, if we are saved by good deeds, then we can have a, pride, then we can have a heart of pride. We can, have a, we can have a heart of contempt. But you're saved apart from works, sheerly and solely by the grace of God given to you in Jesus Christ. You have not earned that at all. There ought to be no pride in us. What's our confidence? Christ is our confidence. Not our record, not our works, not how spiritual we are, not how holy we are, but God's love. God's love. Second is this. So many times we see others in our pride and contempt. We get angry at them. We see, we see everybody needs to serve me, right? We see everything in terms of ourselves, right? This guy's going the speed limit because he hates me, right? Like you think that. We think that. We think of everything in terms of ourselves. So second is the gospel creates a community of servants rather than a group of people that demand to be served. And how does the gospel do that? Why? Because the gospel is the good news of Mark 10, 45. The son, the eternal son of God, the one who deserves all the accolades, worship, and glory and service of the whole entire world, when he came here, did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. So instead of seeing ourselves as up here and everybody else around me needs to do my bidding and my will and you serve me. The gospel creates a humility in us as we see the love of God for us and he serves us in our sin. That creates a community of others who see themselves as servants. Instead of me not getting my will done right there because of you. What do I need to become to love you? To serve you? Most of our anger issues are resolved when we shift our heart and minds thinking to see ourselves as servants rather than the ones who ought to be served. 
inconveniences become opportunities to serve and glorify God and love others instead of an opportunity for anger? Are you a servant? Do you know the serving love of Jesus? Has that transformed your heart? Third is this, when it comes to our anger, our wrath, right? When we're angry, we have this wrath, we have this anger and we unleash it on people with words, maybe with actions. Third is this, God's wrath, God's omnipotent, righteous wrath has been satisfied in Christ. Satisfied in Christ. That's the whole idea behind that word propitiation. God's wrath has been satisfied. And in Christ, upon looking at that, upon seeing the cross, upon upon going deep and seeing that God's righteous anger towards you has been satisfied in Christ so that now God's free to love you, welcome you, accept you, and be for you. Once we get that in Christ, our wrath can be satisfied too. At the heart of the gospel is a God who righteously is angry because of our sin. And instead of wiping us out, instead of giving us what we deserve, he gives us what we don't deserve, grace. He gives us his son. Who in our place for our sin goes to the cross and bears the righteous, omnipotent wrath of God for us. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God in our place so that we can have the love and favor of the Father by faith. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sin. And how can we as a people upon receiving the cross, loving the cross, knowing the cross, how can we insist on pouring out our unrighteous anger, which is oftentimes our anger, it's not righteous, it's unrighteous, no matter how we want to spin it. How can we insist on pouring that out on those around us while claiming to know the power of the cross? How is the gospel displayed in our lives when wrath and anger are always present and not grace? Friends, we cannot enjoy the blessings of God's grace in our lives while refusing to extend it to other people. If you're here and you're jamming out, arms raised, I love the grace of God, and you're just a person marked by wrath and anger, something's missing between here and here. Something's missing. Something's misfiring right there. You're forgetting Jesus died to make you an object of God's mercy when all you do is make others an object of your wrath. Fourth is this. When I look at the cross of Christ, I see that God is for me. And this satisfies some of my angst and my anger towards God and my circumstances. When I look at the cross, I see that God is for me. How can I ever question God's goodness in my life when I see how God gave me his son instead of giving me his wrath? How can I question that God's a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children? How can I question that God's a good God who loves to meet my needs? How can I question that when I look at the cross? I can't question that. God is undeniably for me when I meditate on Jesus dying for my sin. And this is exactly what Pastor Brad read this morning, prepping our hearts for worship, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the love and the favor of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God did not hoard his greatest treasure in his son, but freely gave him to us in grace, how can we question God's goodness in our lives? How can we ever in a circumstance say, no, God, you're not good and you're not giving me what I need. We can never say that. 
The very most precious, treasured thing to God was his son, and he gave him up for us. God loves to meet needs, and he is for us, even when it's not looking like it's working out according to our plan. Reminding ourselves of this always allows me to trust God instead of being angry at him when things don't go my way. When circumstances are difficult, the cross teaches me that maybe God is working something for my good in the midst of what is seemingly bad. Think about these disciples on the night that Jesus died. They walked away from that place beating their breast. They had no idea Easter was coming. They had no idea Sunday was coming. They thought it was the end. Some of you are in the midst of a Good Friday. You're in the darkness of that Good Friday. And it's not going the way you think it should go. And you have no idea Sunday's coming. Easter's coming. God is good. He is for us. Fifth, gospel teaches me that Jesus did not return evil for evil, but willingly subjected himself to an unjust, wrongful death on a cross so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. This is for those of you in here who are truly being mistreated by somebody right now. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a family member. They're just, they're just constant with their words, always at you, mistreating you, insulting you. Hear these words from 1 Peter 2. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did Jesus do in the midst of his sufferings? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He did not take wrath and vengeance upon himself in that moment, but trusted God in the midst of the circumstance that God was going to take care of it. God's going to take care of it. And some of you are angry because someone has legitimately hurt you and wronged you. And just as Jesus trusted God to be the judge and one day make right what is wrong, you too need to trust God that he's going to enact his righteous justice. He's going to take vengeance upon himself. And who knows, as you suffer well underneath their wrath and their insults of you, maybe they might see the beauty of your faith and come to know Jesus as well. That would be a great victory. Sixth is this. Christ is a greater joy, a greater security, a greater treasure than anything else this world has to offer. Therefore, I ought to be content in whatever circumstances. Christ is a greater joy, a greater security, a greater treasure than anything else in this world. Therefore, I ought to be content in my circumstance. I want to challenge some of you who are angry with your circumstances. Do you really, truly see God as the center and the fulfillment of all your joy, all your love, and your whole entire life? Because a lot of times, here's what happens. God is not the object of our love. He's just the genie on the side who gives us good things. And we go to God and say, God, give me that thing. And when God doesn't make do on your demands, we get angry and upset with him because he didn't give us the thing that we really, truly love, the thing that we really, truly think is going to bring us happiness. And God's over here like, I know your heart. Why am I going to give you an idol to worship instead of worshiping me? I talked to a guy on the phone this past week, so angry because he's not getting this one particular job. And he's cried out to God, 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 give me this. I want this. I want this. And he's so angry with God right now because God's not delivering on his demands. And I'm like, I'm just trying to encourage this guy on the cross. I'm like, buddy, God has given you his son. If you became a paraplegic tomorrow with no ability to have any job whatsoever, you'd still have all the reason in the world to be joyful than anybody else in this place because you have the son and he is a treasure and nothing's going to take that away from you. 
And one day this life is going to fade. Along with it, it's jobs, your fat paycheck, and all your toys. And what's going to remain? Christ. Christ is going to remain. Jesus is greater and better. And no circumstance or person can ever separate us from him. Last one is this. The gospel teaches me that God took my sin so seriously that he died for it. You know what that means? It means this. It means that we need to stop justifying our anger and minimizing our anger problems. Some of you in here, your life is dominated by anger. And everyone around you is suffering because of it. And you're minimizing it and you're downplaying it. It's not that big of a deal. I don't need to go see Pastor Gary. I don't need to tell my small group leader. I don't need to tell my friends. It's not that big of a deal. God took my sin so seriously that he crushed his son in broad daylight for it so that I can be reconciled and forgiven. We need to stop minimizing our anger problems. We need to stop blaming God, Satan, other circumstances, and we need to own our sin. We need to be sorrowful over our sin. We need to confess our sins. And we need to throw ourselves at the grace and mercy of God and seek repentance and reconciliation with those who are being hurt by our anger. Which is exactly where Jesus ends up here in this verse. He says, instead of, a being, instead of being a people who are dominated by anger and marked by wrath, be a people that are dominated and marked by reconciliation. You see what he says there? Be a people marked by reconciliation. Verses 23 and 24. Instead of being people that are angry and justify our sin and continue in our anger, let's be a changed and transformed people as those who have come and tasted of the grace of God. Now we, what do we, now we know what to do with our anger, right? Now I know how to deal with my anger, see my anger, all because I've looked at the cross, been transformed by it. Now I need to be a person not dominated by anger, but dominated and marked by reconciliation. So Jesus says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there before the altar and you go. You first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus shows us here that walking in reconciliation with others who are in Christ is as much of a priority as gathering for worship. Some of you make such a priority on gathering on Sundays. I'm so thankful for that. You're like, no matter what, I don't care if it's rain, sleet, snow, tornadoes, like whatever. You're like, we're going to be there. Would that we be a people with such a resolve to reconcile, to love, and to forgive. Notice how Jesus places the responsibility to go and reconcile on the offender. It's on the person whose anger, whose sin has caused the strife. He places the emphasis on them. The one who has hurt someone else in their anger has the responsibility to go. He goes, if you remember that your brother or your wife or your kids or your coworker or someone else in this church or someone else in some other church has something against you, meaning you've hurt them, and the context is your anger, you leave your offering, you stop singing that song, you forget dropping that money in the offering plate, and you go and repent. It's on you, Jesus says. It's on the angry. This this verse means that if you have to, you run down to the children's wing, you pull your kid out of his class, and you look him in the eye, you look her in the eye, and you say, Mommy, Daddy's sorry for what I did this morning. Will you forgive me? Before you sing a single note in this place, you go seek reconciliation with your kids. 
It means you turn to your spouse before you sing a single word of a song and you say, I'm so sorry for how I acted this morning. Will you forgive me? Your offering is garbage if you harbor anger and wrath and don't seek reconciliation. You can't celebrate the gospel of your reconciliation while refusing to seek reconciliation in your own relationships. Now, here's the power of the gospel. God was not the offender, but the offended. He was the offended. And yet God was the one who descended. God was the one who humbled himself to the cross where he bore the wrath of God in our place so that we can be reconciled and forgiven. Reconciliation is the gospel. And we put it on display, friends. We put it on display in our relationships when we seek it with others. I want to invite all of us to be a people that repent of our anger and wrath and seek reconciliation. And I want to invite all my friends in here that struggle with anger to see that the gospel is the power to overcome your sinful anger. Meditating, worshiping, Jesus can change your anger. If you're a person in here who's angry and you've never heard how God sent his son to satisfy his anger towards you, to make you a child and forgive you and reconcile you, I invite you to come and trust that today, right now. You don't got to come down. You don't got to walk an aisle. You don't got to say a magical prayer. In your seat right there, you say, God, I need this grace because I'm jacked up. I need you. Jesus, I love you. I believe in you. Forgive me, God. Simple as that. I want to invite all of you who really struggle with self-centered and idolatrous anger to come and be angry about the things that God is angry about. Come and be passionate and zealous for God's kingdom. Redeem that emotion and anger to advance the gospel and care for people in their brokenness. God's called you to be angry and mad on the right things. Be a passionate person. A person who wants to advance God's kingdom. Love people. Get on mission with God. You do a lot of fighting in your life and it's selfish and it's foolish and it's sinful. Come and fight the good fight and get on mission with God. I want to invite all my spiritually passive and indifferent friends in here to begin fostering a zeal for the things that God loves. To get mad about the things that God gets mad about. We'll see some fire in your bones. And I want to invite anybody who wants to come up here and pray and seek the Lord afterwards to come and do so. I'll be down here. I'd love to pray with you. Seek the Lord. Seek forgiveness together. Spend some time with God.